you trust me? From what I can tell, yes. Then you will trust my work. IG-11 will join me. And we do it not for payment, but to protect the child from imperial slavery. None will be free until the old ways are gone. Forever. Okay. And the Blurgs will join me as well. The Blurgs? I have spoken. Welcome to the Wampa's Lair Podcast. Deep in the bowels of the frozen ice caverns of Hawk, our hosts, Carl LeClaire, Jason Hunt, and Katie Horn, discuss all things Star Wars. So join the conversation and hang out here in the Wampa's Lair. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Wampus Lair podcast. This is episode number 367. I have spoken. I'm, as always, one of your hosts, Jason Hunt, and with me, the Mandalorian himself, Din Djarin, and uh, to my uh, quill, we have Carl LeClaire. Oh, uh, I need your help, Ugnat. I... Uh... I've worked a lifetime to rid myself of servitude. <laughs> yeah, you're supposed to say, I have a name. It is I have Quill. a name. It is Quill. Well, I need Quill. To... <laughs> oh, you ready to talk some Mandalorian? Yes, I am very ready. I've been ready for a long time. All right. You just, just, like, leave the music going all episode yeah, in the background because, so like, good. you know, I, I, I'm not going to lie, Carl. Uh, as an aside, I have pulled up the, you know, various lengths of the Mandalorian theme on loop on YouTube and just let it play while I'm doing stuff before. Uh, (laughs) Depending on how long I need it, I've done that. So it's such a great theme. It's and the music is so good, which we're going to get into in this episode where we just kind of look back now that season one of the Mandalorian has wrapped we're just going to look back on the epi- the season as a whole, talking about some of the things that really stood out to us. Because um, there's just there's so much to say, and the thing is, we'll be revisiting this for a while. It's going to be hard to yeah. get this all into one episode. But man, this show is so. I mean, to be to be simply put, on a scale of ten, this show is definitely a ten out of ten to me. Um, this is the best thing Star Wars related that has happened since Disney has bought the property. In in my opinion. And that's high praise because Carl loves Solo. Yes, <laughs> yes. I put this above Solo definitely, not a doubt about it. Um, and as much as I'm loving Rise of Skywalker right now, this still takes the cake. It's it's a new it's a new uh, you know avenue that Star Wars has taken, you know, with the the live action series and stuff. I'm I'm really intrigued and it 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 has set a very high bar for future Disney Plus Star Wars series. So, yeah, it definitely has. Um, but before we get into Mandalorian in general and in some specifics, um, we had a poll from the last episode where obviously we talked about our favorite moments from The Rise of Skywalker. And then we asked, of course, all of you 
what your favorite moment was from The Rise of Skywalker. And my goodness, were there a plethora of responses, Jason. So what did the Larians have to say about their favorite moments from Episode Nine? All right, so I've collected these from all over Facebook and Twitter. If you mentioned multiple things, I put them both in here, uh, and I kind of combined a couple of different things into a larger scene. Um, So if you don't hear yours specifically, it's because I've combined it in with something a little bit larger to encompass some more things. So um, obviously Carl and I will not have our, our picks in here because you can listen to last week's episode for all that, but here we go. Uh, in sixth place with one vote each, we have John Williams' cameo. For those of you who missed him, he is the bartender on Kajimi. Uh, so pay close attention. He's got a, a fun little eye patch thing going on. Um, we've got Leia's death slash reaching out to Ben. Uh, we've got the visit to Tatooine. Chewie's getting his medal. Uh, Babu Frick, oh, he's one of my oldest friends, uh, was a favorite part. Um the general general moment was <laughs> was somebody's favorite part, which is great. Um, the kiss, the I'm the spy scene. Uh, I knew it. No, you didn't. No, you that did was, not. That was that was uh, I believe it was Jim Urso's favorite scene. Yep. Um, good buddy Jim. Um, the we are not alone speech which made my list. Um, Ben versus the Knights of Ren, the big three hugs. Um, (laughs) This trilogy is big three, Poe, Finn, and Rey. Uh, The Master Leia moment, uh, which I believe was on your list, Carl. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Rey and Poe's first scene, which was also on your list, where, you know, the... (laughs) It's so good. So good. Um, so that's uh, sixth place with one vote each. In fifth place with two votes, uh, we have Luke lifting the X-Wing, the duel on the Death Star, and the duel on slash above Kajimi, which was on my list. So that's a good scene. Uh, in fourth place with three votes, uh, we have the Allied People's Fleet, which um, I learned is the, the name for that. Um, we have uh, the Ben... Uh, we have Ben's solo shrug, <laughs> where he does the Han solo shrug, um, which is pretty good. And I think that's it for fourth place. Yes. Uh, in third place, with five votes, we have Babu Freak. Yes. Uh, we got a lot of the, hey, hey, uh, you know, gifts sent to us. So that was pretty awesome. Um and then in second place, with six votes, we have the I'm all the Jedi moment, which was mm. my number one moment. Uh, and then in first place, with 11 votes, Han and Ben. Mm. People love that moment. It's really good. I mean, it's when Ben comes back and, you know, has his redemption and all that. And it's really, really fantastic. So, uh I, I'm not surprised, but yeah, there you have it. That is the uh, favorite moments from our Larians this time around. So thank you very much, everyone, for weighing in on that. We appreciate it. Um, any other thoughts before we move on to the Mandalorian on that, Carl? No, I, I, I am surprised how much the, the Han and Ben moment pulled away from everything else, though. But again, I mean, <laughs> it's obviously one of my favorite moments as well. So I'd love to see 
how much that resonated with people. That's really phenomenal. Yeah. No, it's it's quite good. Quite quite good. Yeah. All right. But um we've got we've got a backup in history from the rise of Skywalker and uh let's uh stop this train about 5 years after Return of the Jedi and start with the Mandalorian, Carl. What do you say? Let's do it. All right. <laughs> uh, where do you want to start? I mean, honestly, like, you know this, where I want to start? Where do you want to start? The music. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um you know, obviously when this show started, I did a couple little standalone episodes on my own there looking at a few of the the tracks from this particular score that Ludwig Gorenson gave us. And just right on the surface, the music itself um, is so different from anything that's come before. Any, you know, it's different from anything John Williams gave us. It's different from anything John Powell gave us or Michael Giacchino, but it's just so good. And the thing I remember the uh, David W. Collins did a great panel a few celebrations ago about the music of Rogue One, and he talked about you know kind of these essential essential elements that were needed um, in order to do Star Wars music outside the world of John Williams, and he and I can't remember all of them, and, and I'm a little remiss for that, but I know one thing he basically said was the development of themes. Right, that's always been a huge part of Star Wars music as you develop themes, and those themes are used throughout. Um, a particular film to to narratively tell the story. That's something Ludwig Gordonson does a beautiful job of. Um, while so much of the action music, there are so many cues that are, again, very different um, with electric guitars, uh, very dissonant keyboards. Um, he still does a phenomenal job of specifically developing a theme for The Mandalorian, but also all sorts of different kinds of music. And he uses that to so beautifully narrate the story which is again just quintessential star wars um and i just give such tremendous props to him for building this new world of music but it still feels like star wars and that's exactly what i think captures the spirit of the mandalorian itself just as a show is that it's something very different from any of the star wars films which in some ways makes sense it is a tv show as opposed to a movie um but it is something different from anything that's come before but yet it's still Star Wars and it feels so just inherently Star Wars. And I think that the music really captures that. Um, so I wanted to highlight a few pieces of music, if you don't mind. Um, oh, please things do. That, things that I think really, really work. And I'm just going to play some quick clips here. Um, but the first clip I want to play is from the track uh, from Chapter One called You Are a Mandalorian. And it's the first time we really hear his theme being developed. And it's as he's trying to learn to ride the Blurg. Um, So let me get to that part. Here we go. Just even that, right? It's the it's the first time we really get a strong statement of the theme, besides like the opening little like Mandalorian uh, screen cap. 
um, yeah. credit, whatever you want to call it. Oh, by the way, really quick. This is the first Star Wars property that doesn't begin with a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Um, that is that is true. Although I guess Clone Wars doesn't, does it? Uh, technically not, but it has like a little, you know, fortune cookie right. in place of that. Right. Yeah. But this is the first time that we don't get anything like that, which I just thought was interesting. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, this piece of music is phenomenal. It's, it's a development of the theme. It's in the first chapter. It, it, it to me, just indicates where this journey is going, that this, this character, the Mandalorian is destined for something great. There's something very triumphant in the way that this piece of music is played. Um, so again, like from chapter one, boom, right off the bat, like this guy is destined for something greater than the life of a bounty hunter. Um, and then I just want to fast forward to chapter two. Uh, I absolutely love the track, the next journey. Um, let me get to this where we again, get his theme. Here we go. His theme is coming in. Quill has just helped him rebuild the razor crest. The theme really builds into all of its glory. He's had his trial with the mud horn. Um, He's able and, to, yeah. Go ahead. And, and he's he's learned something about the child. Yes, there is something special about this child. Yeah. Get that theme building as he kind of takes ownership of that heroic quality in himself. So heroic. How it just keeps building, it's so transcendent, and ah, yeah, I did a I did a little standalone episode just about this particular track. So if you want to hear my thoughts more on that, you can check out that mini episode. Um, But yeah, right. Like this is right at the end of chapter two. There is this kind of statement that this, this particular character is taking ownership of the kind of hero he's going to be. Um, Another piece I want to get that and grab is from chapter three. This is probably still my favorite piece of music from the Mandalorian. Um, this is the track Mando rescue, which again, I also did a standalone episode about, but I just want to go. Um, I want to go to this part right here where he is saved. I, I could listen to that track all day, every day. It's so freaking good. So again, I don't want to very good. I don't want to repeat myself because I, I I've done a little episode just about this particular track. But again, this this particular track really shows how this clan that he is part of, this Mandalorian clan, claims him, claims him now in that state of herohood, if you will. Um, you know, this is him doing something heroic. In, in chapter three, he makes that 
choice of being the hero, of going back to rescue the child and, you know, shouldering all the consequences of that choice. But it's a heroic decision and that heroic decision is seen by his clan and and they come to his rescue. And it's just such a beautiful piece of music as he kind of settles into that life of the hero. Um, and can I can I bring something up, please? Absolutely. Have you play? Yeah. Yeah. OK. Please. Um, another another theme that makes its way into it, and it's only played in one specific area usually, um, but it's played, I believe, three times in the series. Um, and this is the forging mm. theme. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. If you go to Signet Forging from Chapter 3, um, about 50 seconds in, um, this is the part I'm talking about. So, um, And it's usually only played when uh, the forger is doing her work. But it also... There, there it is. Yeah. Always use when his backstory is being explored, right? Yeah, yeah. It's always used when his backstory is being uh, explored and as he's reviewing and coming to terms with who he is and who he is supposed to be. Yes. Because not only is it forging his armor, it's forging him. Ah, oh, great point, Jason. This one has the heroic end to this version of it. You know what's really cool, and I don't want to get too uh, too into the to the music, because I know we want to talk about this as a whole, but it's just so hard right. not to talk about this music. In, right. right in there, right embedded in the end there, even though – so this is – you know, uh, that's in chapter three where yes. we're getting a little bit more of his backstory. Um, but this, this is where we first get that piece of Mando rescue music. So it, even though we don't see the Mandalorian show up in this particular flashback, it hints to the fact that they're coming. Right there. Yeah. Yeah. Right there. So that's, yeah, that's that really, that's like that main melody from the, um, Mando rescue track. So, so cool. Yeah. So again, yeah, like no, this it, is Ludwig using again that Star Wars mentality of using that theme to to indicate something to come. Yeah, and uh, just one other final thought I want to say on on the music here because I know we want to get to the actual story of the Mandalorian um, and the characters uh, within that, but um, the the other thing that he does that's really kind of cool is that when need be. He gives each episode its own sort of signature sound, signature flair. Yes. Um, like, you know, for example, when he's on Tatooine, there's that, that certain sound. Um, or in episode Sanctuary, it's a lot more peaceful and melodic. You know, uh, the, there's the, the weird um, – I'm, I'm blanking on the, the melody itself, but there's that weird uh, leitmotif. In the episode where he's, you know, with all the other bounty hunters uh, doing the prison break yeah. and everything. And it's, it, you know, he, he he gives that thing, each episode, its own little flair um, while still working in all these themes and important moments and stuff. And he's, you know, he's a great pick to bring, you know, uh, a new take on Star Wars music uh, in a series like this. So I'm oh, yeah. I am beyond excited that he's attached to this project and, and i'm just wondering if he will be attached to future disney 
plus um, Star Wars projects or if he's just primarily Mandalorian. But yeah, we'll see. I don't know. But yeah, I I hope he continues with Mandalorian, if nothing else. Yes. um, Yeah. Well, I I love this from chapter four. Mando says goodbye at the end of the, the Sorgan stuff. Right. Yeah. This is such a beautiful piece. Chapter four is still my second favorite episode. Um, and I really like this episode oh, it's a lot. So it's beautiful. one of my favorites. Yeah. Sanctuary. And this right here's his theme wrapped in this kind of very sanctuary, peaceful music. Uh, oh my god, it's just so beautiful, and it captures the feeling of that that episode so well that somehow everything's going to be okay for for the Mando and the child. Right. Um, yeah, I love it. So I'm just gonna. I two more things I want to do just to highlight <laughs> the awesome like action music that we get from uh, yeah. from this particular score. So the first one I just want to hit really quick is from Chapter Five, where they obviously return to Tatooine. I love the music for the speeder bikes riding through the uh, the desert. So right here, it's got such a cool groove. Yes, this is the sound I was talking about. Uh, I want to cheat. Uh, it's again, it's it's so freaking cool. That's, um, that's the signature sound for that episode. It's yeah. used a couple times. And it's really cool. It's so cool. Um, just as they're you know f- f- driving through the deserts of Tatooine there. And then the last track I want to grab is from the, the final chapter, chapter eight, the track titled Nurse and Protect, which is where we get IG-11 just tearing it up. So oh, um, it's, this is fun. This is fun so stuff. Fun. And, it, and it's so so damn cool. Um, By so, the way, we should probably have mentioned spoilers abound for Mandalorian. Oh, yeah. This episode. Yeah. But, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you're listening to this, I'm going to assume you've been watching. But yes, you're right. Spoilers ahead. But yeah. Um, uh, this has got such a cool groove, too. It literally makes me want to dance. Yeah, it's got that sort of electronica vibe because, yes. you know, it's IG-11, you know, who's sort of leading the charge in this moment. Ah, oh, so good. And then I'm just going to fast forward a tiny bit to when the Mando comes out from the hiding and just starts kicking, kicking some ass. There we go. God, that percussion, man. So good. Such a sense of controlled chaos within that music, which is what's going on in the scene, too. So it's, oh, it's really good. Yeah, yeah. Folks, if you don't have the music on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your music (laughs) downloads, what is your problem? (laughs) This is... This soundtrack deserves its place in the lexicon of Star Wars soundtracks. So, you know, get on it if you haven't already. You will not be disappointed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's so funny because I think, to be fair, until the Disney era, I never would have even thought about listening to Star Wars music while I'm at the gym. Um, And then 
uh, solo was really the first time I started listening to to music at the gym. Uh, actually, I take that back. Rogue One was the Rogue One title track is like such a great song to to work out to. Yeah. Um, but I will say Mandalorian. Oh my God! There's so many great pump up songs in this score. Um, you know, and and this is something maybe I'll delve into a tiny bit as we start to discuss the season in, as a whole. But there's so many things about this character that elicit for me themes from the Rocky films, as well as the dark Knight trilogy. And both of those types of stories really pump me up. I mean, these are stories of, of characters who are down and out, who rise up to challenges and, and, and conquer them. Um, and I feel like Ludwig Göransson really gives us that feeling and so much of the music that, well, he's is, been doing the music for the Creed movies. Exactly. So yeah. that's, that's a good, it's a good connection, sir. Yes. So, um, but yeah, what, what else stands out to you in, in this first season from Mandalorian? Uh, from the season as a whole, honestly, the, the thing that stands out to me most is, um, well, there's a few things. The first thing, and I've mentioned this before, um, is the fact that it does not rush itself. The story does not rush itself at all. Um, and this has been one of the things I've been most impressed by this series is that each episode has its own story to tell. It is not rushing it, and it will take as long as it needs to tell the story. We've yeah. got some episodes that are only 35 minutes. We've got some episodes that are over an hour or, or almost an no, hour. No. You know. Yeah. None of them are even an hour. Yeah. Almost the an hour. Yeah. So it's 47 minutes. So. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, you know, it, it, it's not trying to, you know, it's not like a episodic TV where they have to mm -hmm. fill like 42 minutes or whatever out of the hour. Um, but it, it takes its time. Each episode is a deliberate step on this story. And it starts off really kind of slow and, and kind of very methodical as it establishes the characters, establishes the relationships, uh, especially between the Mandalorian and the child. Um and then as we hit you know the second half of the the season it it picks up steam until we get to the conclusion of this season while still leaving quite a bit open ended for what's going to happen next which we'll talk about at the end of the episode I'm sure um and so that's been one of the things that's been most impressive to me by is that they they definitely seem to know where they're going but they're not rushing to get it all t the story all told um the other thing I really am appreciating about this uh, series is the the characters, mm. our primary characters. You know, you've got the Mandalorian, the child. There's Quill, Cara Dune, uh, Grief Karga, um, IG Eleven. I guess you can put in there too. Um, and then, you know, even though he's only in basically, you know, the last episode, maybe just a little, you know, a little bit more. Obviously, at the end of the second to last episode, uh, Moff uh, Gideon is he walked into that story and owned it, yeah. you know? Yes, um, he did. <laughs> so, but all these characters um, are really intriguing. We only know part about, you know, part of their stories. We don't know everything about them yet. Uh, and they're sort of slowly opening up not only to each other, but to us. Uh, and, uh, we we know a lot more about the Mandalorian, obviously, because he's the main character. Um, but there's still more to know, uh, and and these characters are really nicely established, and they feel very 
full and complete, even though we only know bits and pieces about them. You know, uh, I really appreciate the characters a lot in this um, this series. And those are sort of like general overall thoughts about the series that I really, really am liking. Um, the story is cool, too, but it's only just beginning. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what about you? Do you have some sort of general overall thoughts on the, the series as a whole? Yeah, I mean, I have a lot, but I'll, I'm, I'm going to try to keep them to a minimum. Um, but something that, something that jumped out to me early in the season and, and I felt like persisted was that I feel that the, the Mandalorian character is providing us with a very positive sense of masculinity, um, in a culture today where we see lots of toxic masculinity, um, right. Where basically a masculine character is only in for things for themselves. They're always taking advantage of others just for their own sake of good and their sense of power always comes from dominance, um, which is a very toxic sense of masculinity. Um, the Mandalorian is, while I'm not saying he's a perfect, um, enfleshment of this, it's just, it's a very healthy to me understanding of what it means to be masculine. And, and, and this is a question just like on, on the side, like I've been asking just for a little while now is, is okay. We, we hear all the time about toxic masculinity. Well, what's something good about masculinity, right? Because there's so many wonderful things about um, tapping into our feminine um, side, but what about our masculine side? There is obviously something good about that. And I think that this series, this, this particular character shows us some of the positive attributes of a, 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 you know, a positive sense of masculinity. And what I mean by that is uh, a couple of things. First off, he is a honest character. Um, and uh, to me, a, a perfect example of, of his honesty um, is uh, that moment when he confesses in chapter two to the armorer that um, she's like, oh, the mudhorn should be your signet. And well, this is in chapter three, excuse me. You know, the mudhorn should be your signet. Well, I didn't. Def- it wasn't a noble kill. I had help. And he's admitting this in front of the other Mandalorians, too. Right. Like he's got all of these other clansmen around him. And yet he still is honest about the fact that he didn't do this on his own, that he had help and he's not yeah. ashamed of it. Right. Um, I think this is a really uh, just such a beautiful uh, showcase of, of being honest and being humble. Um, he's obviously an incredibly courageous character. I mean, that's seen throughout the entire season. Uh, he's also a character who's of, willing to be vulnerable. Um, this is why I love chapter four so much on Sorgan is his ability to just open up to, uh, Omera. Um, mm-hmm. I love her character. This is a character I really hope we see again in, in season two. Yeah, um, definitely the way that they connect the way he's willing to tell her his story about what happened to his family, about how he was taken in by the Mandalorians. I mean, you know, you, you think of your typical like masculine guy in a Western um, and he's always a closed book. That's not true here with Mandalorian. It's not like he's super em- emotional and all, you know, pouring out his heart per se, but he's just, he's telling his story. He's willing to be open. Um, and that kind of comes to a, this beautiful point at the end of that episode where she's offering him stay here, you know, we're grateful for you. And she starts to take that helmet off. And he just confesses, I don't belong here, but, but the child does. And, you know, there's just this beautiful sense of vulnerability to him. Um, he's not uh, closed off from his emotional life. 
um, which mm-hmm. I think is really beautiful. And the last thing he showcases is the sense of loyalty, um, right? He takes on this child and it changes his life, but he's loyal to this, this child as a foundling and what that means for him. Um, and so again, these are, to me, these are all positive attributes of what it means to be a strong masculine character. Um, and that's what I love about him so much. And I think that there are a lot of characters around him that are still continue to be kind of more toxic masculinity. Uh, um, Moff Gideon is a prime example of that. All he cares about is power um, and dominance. But the Mandalorian is kind of a counter to that. He's not yeah. about dominating. Well, um, one other thing to add to the, that list of, of positive masculinity is that he's a protector. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So he, you know, especially once once he decides that he's not leaving the child uh, with the the client, it is his sole purpose to protect this child and to keep it safe. Um, you know, that is that is something immensely central to all of of him and this this series. So, yeah, no, it's it's a good point. It's a really good point. And I, I think you've mentioned it on the show before. But, yeah, it's definitely something that needs to be repeated. Yeah. Um, but what's something else that stands out to you? Oh, man. Um, I, I really like the fact that we are very carefully creating a picture of the galaxy post return of the Jedi with this show. Mm. You know, the, the world building is there. It's very subtle and it's, you know, you have to be looking for it sometimes to find it. But, you know, we, we get something a little bit more blatant about it when we meet Kara, Kara Dune. And she talks about the fact that, you know, the war is over. We we've, you know, after taking down Imperial warlords and all that stuff, we've really kind of settled down. Um, now it's all about diplomacy and trying to, uh, you know, rebuild the galaxy. Um, Republic credits are still no good out here. Um, Imperial credits are, are I need something you know, more real. Yes, I mean something more real. Uh, Imperial credits are tanking because you know they, they're so uh, worthless. Um, while while the Republic is trying to, you know establish a foothold in the galaxy still politically you know we we are left uh with a at a point where especially on the outer rim which is where we are we are everything is just sort of in chaos and in flux Mm. and nobody really knows what's happening next um and and it's just really kind of interesting to to see how in the background, this show is is painting a picture of the galaxy post-Return of the Jedi um, as we get to the point where we will finally be in um, The Force Awakens. So there's some really nice little, little moments and little things in there um, that are uh, you know, interesting. And then, you know, you throw Moff Gideon into the mix uh, and that kind of throws everything up in the air like is he you know just been hiding out and is trying to you know start something underneath the republic's nose is he you know standing out as like the uh, a leader of an imperial remnant at this point 
who is this guy? Why is he so terrifying? Um, you know, that sort of thing. Why does he have a dark uh, saber? Yeah, why does he have the freaking dark saber? <laughs> that oh, that happened, and I nearly lost my mind uh, when I saw that. Um, it was so good. I was so happy. <laughs> um, but he's also supposed to be the. We're also getting history of the Mandalorians, you know, yep. uh, thrown in here too. You know, but after Clone Wars, Clone Wars is the last time we really no Rebels, Rebels. is the last time we really kind of saw any uh, definitive picture of uh, the Mandalorians, and they they've been beaten down and essentially subjugated by the Empire, you know by the time we get to rebels and they're sort of, you know, in a state of flux at this point after the empire is destroyed. Uh, but apparently Moff Gideon, uh, was very instrumental in the, uh, takeover of the Mandalorians by the empire, because that's where he gets that, that dark saber. You have to think that, you know, he's got to have taken that from somebody. Um, and that's a story that I'd be interested to see, you know, explained at the very least. Um, but, ugh, sets up so many interesting possibilities. <laughs> yeah, it really does. And I think that, again, another highlight of the show in general is just its ability to have us asking these questions. And, you know, introducing these incredible world building moments without explaining them. <laughs> um, yes. And, you know, it really isn't until the final episode that we really get the full picture of Din Djarin's background, um, how he became part of the Mandalorians and all of that. And we know next to nothing about Moff Gideon other than like, you know, we learned that he was an ISB officer during the purge on Mandalore. Um, but that's it. You know, what's his obsession with the child, right? Where's that coming from? Why does yeah. he need to have this, have this child? Um, so I think this is such a great part of star Wars. Um, I mean, I just remember even as a kid seeing the original movies, the first times, um, and just asking all of these questions that aren't blatantly answered. And that's part of the fun of the star Wars fan community. Um, and, I love that we got so many of those questions in the Mandalorian. Um, yeah. 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 It's so fun. And yeah, that kind of actually leads into a point I wanted to make about how this particular story continues a central trope in star Wars, which is uh, characters who grow up in light of tragedy. Um, yeah. Right. I and mean, we got that with Luke Skywalker, with Owen and Beru being slaughtered. We get that with Anakin being separated from his mother. Then we get it in our first standalone with Jin witnessing the murder of her mother and the abduction of her father. Um, we get it in Solo with Han being ripped apart from, you know, his his love interest. All of Star Wars. That is there's always been this trope of characters who grow up in the face of tragedy. And we learned that little Din Djarin faced a very similar, similar tale. He witnesses the death of his parents at the hands of the clone army, which also is so damn cool to see a clone wars 
encounter in live action. Um, yeah, that's so freaking cool. Um, so we learned that, and, and again, this is part of one of my general attractions to Star Wars in general is that there are so many of these stories about how we can grow up in the face of tragedy and yet become more than that tragedy, right? We don't, not letting that tragedy define you. Um, and what's interesting about Din Djarin is he's rescued by these Mandalorians. We learn something totally new about the Mandalorians in light of that. The fact that they're not a race, it's a creed, which, um, you know, that was something I was thinking about early on in the season, you know, that these, the, 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 the stuff about foundlings and even getting those brief flashbacks of what doesn't appear to be Mandalore. And yet this character is a Mandalorian. So I love that it expands this lore about the Mandalorians, that there's also this particular group, that's willing to bring in anyone as long as they're willing to swear to this creed. Um, and I think that's so darn cool. Uh, yeah. So, but what's, what's neat too is the initial, <coughs> excuse me, the initial flashbacks, um, both in chapter one and then again in chapter three, while the armor is first making his pot, uh, uh, gosh, what do you call that shoulder thing? A pauldron. <laughs> Yeah, pauldron. Pauldron, and then obviously yeah. his full full set of armor. It's kind of, again, just beautiful storytelling. That's always intercut with his tragic backstory. So there's something about this armor keeping him safe, right? There's something about this Mandalorian culture that protects him, that keeps him safe. Um, and in some ways almost shields him from the pain of what he lost. Uh, one of my favorite lines that he says is in Chapter 4 when he's telling Cara Dune that he's going to leave the child on Sorgan and, and leave. Um, and she says, it's going to break his little heart. And then <laughs> Jaren says, he'll get over it. We all do. Yeah. I love that line. I mean, this is the, he, he's basically saying, yeah, I know what I've had my heart broken too. And I got over it. Um, and it's not a way of diminishing that feeling. It's not saying that doesn't matter, but it's saying, yeah, sometimes in life our hearts get broken, but we'll get over it. Like that's part of life. That's how we grow. Um, and and I love that moment that, uh, that there's this reality that there's something about this Mandalorian creed, something about this tribe that he's part of that helped protect him and keep him safe from the pain of what he lost. Um, but the thing is, and this is what I think is really interesting as we move into season two and especially in light of the fact that the Mandalorians on um, uh, Navarro essentially get slaughtered. Um, yeah. But how this will open up for, for him in the future in the sense of the Mandalorians provided something safe for him. It gave him a safe haven. Um, and yet you can't always hide from the pain of your past. You also have to own it and grow beyond it. And I think he's, he's finally starting to do that. Um, and to me, what perfectly encapsulates that, I love the moment. Uh, it's one of my favorite moments in the entire season is, again, in, it's in Chapter 8, obviously, but it's when IG-11 removes his helmet. Um, yeah. I, you know, I think we were all asking all season, are we ever going to see him without the helmet? And obviously, we do get that beautiful moment in Chapter 4 where he, we see him take the helmet off. We don't see his face, but he takes the helmet off to eat. Um, yeah. But here we have, and I, I think it's so freaking powerful that it's IG-11 
He is so because distra- he's he's hated droids. Yes, and that we, is the one thing that we know about the Mandalorian before we even know anything else about him is he hates droids. Yes, and in that particular episode, we figure out fully why. Right, um, you know that he just doesn't trust them because those are who murdered his family, and yet in this moment, he trusts this droid. Um, and and I love that line from IG Eleven when uh, Din Djarin says. You know, I, all IG-11s are, you know, you're programmed to kill, not this one, is IG-11's response, right? That um, droids are neutral reflections, as Quill reminds us. Um, and in this moment, Din Djarin entrusts himself to the thing he's most afraid of, understanding that the thing he's most afraid of isn't all droids, Right. Um, and something that it honestly made me think of from our own recent history is after, you know, September 11th, when there was this disgusting reaction by so many Americans that all Muslims were bad because of the actions of a, you know, perverted few. Um, it, it made me think of that, how like Din Djarin's negative experience of some droids made him then typecast every single droid as murderers and, and destructors. But that's not the case. Yeah. Um, you know, he learns that lesson. And not only that, when IG-11 makes the decision to sacrifice himself, he's sad. He's like, no, we need you. There's nothing to be sad about. I'm not sad. Yes, you are. I'm a nurse droid. I analyzed your voice. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) So good. Um, But yeah, I mean, it shows that he's able, uh, you know, to grow on the limitations of what he's experienced. And I love that about him. That's what makes him a hero. It, it, he's a hero because he's imperfect and he can learn from those imperfections. That's what a real hero is. Yeah. So oh, I just went on a rant. Sad, <laughs> yeah, no. Speaking of sad, though, um, Quill's oh, story. Yeah. Let's talk about him. Uh, Quill is still one of my absolute favorite characters from this show. Mm. I have spoken. <laughs> um I, first of all, that line is just terrific. Oh, yeah. Um, and the fact that he doesn't take any crap from the Mandalorian whatsoever. Or Cara uh, Dune. Is great. What? Or from Cara Dune. When she's like oh, that's, trying to minimize yeah. his experience and he's like, don't dare, don't you dare question what I've been through. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's good. He's a fantastic character. I love him so much. And, you know, he really kind of, you know, helps. Uh, he's probably one of the first ones outside of the Mandalorian enclave that has actually encouraged and helped the Mandalorian in any sort of way on his journey. And I think that's part of what sort of opens the Mandalorian up to reconsidering what he's doing with this bounty. Um, but I, he's expertly played by Nick Nolte. Um, and I, I love, I love this character so much. And I, I knew, I knew, I knew he was not going to survive, you know, as we led up into that last half of episode seven. But I was hoping against all hope that he was going to be able to make it into the ship in time. Um, You know, as soon as those speeder bikes took off, I was like, oh, no, don't do this to me. Don't don't do this to me. But they did it to me. Yeah. And that that last shot of him laying there in the dirt with his blurg, you know, mm. behind him, uh, as the, 
uh, scout troopers swing by to pick up the child is just heartbreaking. Yes. You know, he has worked so hard. He says multiple times he's worked so hard to have his home, his own valley, you know, to to live under his own terms. And he comes along to his, to help under his own terms on his you know in the way that he wants to do so um because he has done you know living a life of servitude living a life of essentially indentured slavery uh he's an indentured servant you know from what we can tell from his past and and he he does all this uh to not only help protect the child because the child means a lot in the grand scheme of things, you know, not only for, you know, this particular situation, but also to the Mandalorian who I think he has come to regard as a friend. Yeah. You know? Um, and so he's also doing it to help his friend. Uh, and, and then to have it all just end like that is just heartbreaking because I wanted him to – of all the characters in this show, I wanted Quill to have a happily ever after where he can just live out the rest of his days on his little farm raising his blurgs um, and repairing junked up droids that the Mandalorian sends his way. You know, that sort of thing. Uh, yeah. So – I uh, I love him so much. He was such a fantastic character, and I knew as soon as he came back into the picture, you know, the end of the season there, I was like, oh, they're going to kill him off. Mm-hmm. I hope I'm wrong, but they're going to kill him off. Um, and they did, and I was sad. But yeah, <laughs> I honestly didn't see it coming. Um, I, I did not expect him to be killed off. No. So that really surprised me. Um. You know what's cool, though, about Quill? Well, what's well, cool about Quill? Lots of things. But we do get a theme for Quill, musically. Oh, interesting. We do. And uh, it goes a little like this. such a peaceful nobility to that particular uh, piece of music and yeah um so i i I took that out of the uh, track trashed crest from chapter two but we hear it again when kara and the mandalorian return to to enlist quill's help in chapter seven we hear that as they land and then are welcomed into quill's home so that's why i'm assuming it's his theme i could be wrong um, I think it is. Uh, it, it, it has to be his theme. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, uh, it's it's played when he's going to Sequel, and then it's played again when they arrive in Sequel. <laughs> so that's why I feel like it's a valid reason. And and also, just musically speaking, again, I feel like it really captures his character in the sense of there's something peaceful yet honorable in it. And all those things you said, Jason, right? Like he's all he wants out of life is peace, um, especially after a life of being sold into servitude. You know, I mean, he's basically a slave Um, and, you know, he is he's kind of the Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon Jinn character rolled into one of the Mandalorian. He is our wise mentor um, for the Mandalorian specifically. Um, 
And one of the things he really teaches us is acceptance of anyone, right? He sees IG-11 as just a neutral reflection of whoever created him. He can be reprogrammed based on, you know, affirmation and nurturing, right? Um, And this is something like we, I don't want to get into tons of specifics with, with a general episode, but this show really does raise the theme of nature versus nurture, um, which it is does. just an age-old question um, in, in human psychology. Um, and Quill's of the opinion that nurture trumps nature, um, and he seems to be right. Um, I agree with Quill. Uh, yeah. but, you know, I have spoken. <laughs> exactly. He has spoken, <laughs> and I agree with him. Um, and I love that he kind of is a moral compass for the Mandalorian. Yeah. He comes to his aid. Um, he offers him help. Um, and I think he also, I mean, at the end, chapter two, so I alluded earlier that chapter four is my second favorite episode. Chapter two is my by far favorite episode of the season. Um, and when he and Quill part ways at the end of that episode and, you know, he's trying to give Quill some some money, like, thank you. Like, you you know, you help, gave me all this help. I don't want your money. All right. Well, how about you come and join my, you know, be part of my crew? No, I don't. I don't want to be anybody's servant anymore. And the Mandalorian has just this tremendous respect for him. I understand. All I can offer then is my thanks. And his response is, and I offer mine. You know, oh my God. You I, have brought peace to my valley. Yeah. You know. And and I love, again, even like his cryptic farewell to the Mandalorian at the end of chapter two when he says, um, may the child bring you a handsome reward. I think he means more than money. I, right. Like, I think he's indicating that I, I hope this child brings something more to your life, like a true yeah. reward, right? Like, it's so beautiful. Yeah. I mean, and let's back up for one second yeah. because we are talking about all these noble, honorable qualities wrapped up in a freaking Ugnot. Yes. Um, and of course, Ugnots, as we remember from Cloud City in The Empire Strikes Back, are obnoxious, gross creatures. Who uh, basically tore 3PO apart. Um, you know, that's the extent of what we know about Ugnaughts. They are not necessarily in uh, extraneous Star Wars material considered to be, how shall we put it, noble characters. Um, and all of this is wrapped up in a, in a character who looks based on just purely on his race that this type of character shouldn't exist within this 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 species you know based on everything else that we've known and experienced in star wars and yet they so expertly throw that upside down turn it on its head and go yeah no he's possibly the the purest character in this story um you know maybe even more pure than the child himself Uh, you know (laughs) yeah yeah so um i i just i just have to to that had to have been a deliberate choice. Yeah. You know, to, uh, to make him an Ugnot. Yeah. Can I, can I, I want to jump off something you just said that I really like, if you don't yes. mind. So I yeah. love that point you made about him being this incredibly pure character. So something I love from chapter seven, when the Mandalorian's coming up with the plan of how they're going to infiltrate and take out the client. And he entrusts, obviously Quill, take the child, go back to the razor quest. Um, Quill wraps the child in this beautiful blue like scarf or shawl or something and is carrying him away. 
And so in Christian art, in like Christian iconography, we typically see Mary, the mother of Jesus, usually um, dressed in blue in paintings. And the reason for that is is because in early Christian art, blue was a symbol of purity. That's why you see Mary often in blue. I love that Quill wraps the child in this cloth of purity. There's something very pure about the child. But where did that cloth come from? It came from Quill. Quill is offering his own purity. He wraps his own purity around that child. It's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Um, and as he carries that child away, ugh, it's so freaking good. And, it is. Um, really quick, I can't help myself because now that we're talking about that scene, this is also you one play of the music. Th- yep, thank you. Uh, the track is This Is It. Um, folks, this- folks, this is going to happen <laughs> the entire episode, just so you know. Here we go. We're, hatch- we're hatching the plan right now. Oh, yeah. The chimes to indicate the child. Quill's being entrusted. Let's do this. Child's looking as Quill's carrying him. So beautiful. They believe in this. I can't tell you how much I've been able to bench press thanks to that song. Such a bro sentence. I'm so sorry. Carl has been setting, uh, you know, bench records with the Mandalorian soundtrack, ladies and gentlemen. No, I'm I'm kidding, but I'm I'm probably not far off. Um, Um, I just, I love that scene. It's so freaking beautiful. Um, and, And just the way they all believe in each other in that moment. They trust each other, right? The Mandalorian hands over his gun, is willingly handcuffed. Kara has to trust in Grief Karga, this guy she barely knows who almost betrayed them. Quill trusts in all of them and takes on the protection of the child. And what's so interesting is earlier in that episode, when the Mandalorian asks for his help protecting the child, he says, I'm not equipped for that kind of work. But in this moment, the Mandalorian's trust in Quill makes him believe he can protect the child. It's just this beautiful statement of belief in each other. This is what Star Wars is about, man. We believe in each yeah. other and we can accomplish anything. Yeah. Oh, okay. it's so Done. good. <laughs> it's so very good. Um, all right. Uh, do you mind if we Please. switch? Yeah, let's switch directions gears. here. Let's do it, dude. The Force. The Force. The Force <laughs> in The Mandalorian, ladies and gentlemen. I remember um, we did our initial reaction to episode one. Um, of the Mandalorian and I asked you guys if the child was going to be force sensitive Mm. and you were wrong uh, I was completely wrong the (laughs) child is is a disappointment to all of us no Uh, (laughs) we just lost a thousand listeners (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sorry that's almost as bad as the scout trooper punching the child in the face The most hated character in all of Star Wars yes, right there, ladies absolutely. and gentlemen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, 
And when IG-11 walks up, you're like, kill him. Yes. Kill, him kill him with kill fire. Him. Kill him now. <laughs> I shouldn't. Yes, yes you should. <laughs> yes, you should. Oh, man. <sighs> Anyways, but I we watched, you know, the, the second episode and – I, when he walked, the Mandalorian's fixing his armor, and the child walks up and starts reaching up to him. I'm like, yeah. "Oh, that's got to be that's got to yep. be. He's got to be trying to use the Force." Yes. I mean, come on, right? Yep. Right. And then the end of the episode happens, and he lifts the mud horn so that the Mandalorian can kill it, and then passes out because that was a lot, um, you know. <laughs> and I was like, "Yes, I was right." First of all, but then the fact that that. This is something that the the child then, of course, demonstrates, you know, multiple times throughout the series is his ability to use the force. And not always, you know, in friendly ways. He starts choking Kara out <laughs> yeah. at one point uh, when when they're arm wrestling and she's beating him. Um, but and then, of course, in the the final episode where he holds the flame back from the the fire trooper. Um, and sends it back where it came from. It's just, it's just a very interesting thing, and it's a very raw sort of instinctual use of the force. And of course, we get the first you know use of of a force healing in any sort of Star Wars project outside of a video game yeah. uh, from the child, you know, in in this series when he heals uh, grief cargo. Um, Baby Yoda did it first before Ray. Um, just just putting that out there. Um, <laughs> but uh yeah it's a very interesting thing and the the way that they have it wrapped into the story um just asks more questions you know than than anything else was was this child of course the child's supposed to be 50 years old was this child supposed to be going to the jedi uh order before the clone wars um was is this just sort of a a natural gift that Yoda's species has uh, that they're force sensitive? Uh, since it appears there are so few of them, so few that we don't even know the species, um, and the fact that the force is still this sort of magical, mystical thing that has sort of fallen out of common knowledge. Yeah this point still is is sort of an interesting thing when you're only you know 30 years removed from you know 30 or so years removed from the jedi purge um you know it's a very interesting set of scenarios and the way that they use the force in this show i thought was very well done um and (laughs) i still think my favorite part uh of the child trying to use the force is uh in episode six where um <laughs> yeah uh, zero uh, yeah zero thank yeah, you zero is about ready to blast him and he raises his hand and he's about to do something <laughs> and then uh you know the mandalorian blasts zero to pieces and he just sort of looks down at his hand like did oh, i do that <laughs> so adorable i know it's the most amazing little moment it's fantastic um and we need to, we, I, I've said it before, but we need to get the child's name so we can stop calling it Baby Yoda because it's not. It's not Baby um, Yoda. Yeah, people get confused by it too because I've had, you know, like uh, casual Star Wars people be like, oh, so that's like a young Yoda. I'm like, no, it's not. It's just they're calling it that because he's the same species. And we don't know the species. Yeah, and hopefully yeah, we never I, will. 
I, I'm yeah. still of that opinion. I don't want to know it. Um, but the most interesting fact about all of this is that in the final episode when the um, the Forger is giving the Mandalorian his new yes. directive, mm-hmm. you know, you have to return the child to his people. Well, there are two options here. His people, does that mean the species? Uh, you know, these little green species with big ears and potential force powers or, you know, the topic of Jedi. Yeah, these sorcerers. Sorcerers uh, was brought up. So does that mean he's going to be looking for Jedi now? Which direction does he go? Is he going to try and find a home world? Is he going to try and find, you know, a, a group of, of force wielders? Um and if so, what what adventures does that lead him into? Because that's the that's one of those open ended questions that uh, is not explicitly you know discussed as to what that means. You know what what is this journey going to look like? Because you could get into all sorts of different things. You know yeah. you could start exploring the outer rim for weird aliens, or you could like start delving into Jedi business. Um, Go back to your drink. Yes, um, I was just gonna say that. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Oh. Uh, but yeah, so that that whole aspect is very interesting, and I'm very excited to see where we go with with the child himself, and with the the path that they take to try to reunite the child with his people, mm-hmm. whatever that ends up being. So do you have any thoughts on all that? I'm sure you do. No, none at all. Okay. Um, Well, let's just end the episode. Perfect. I just wanted to talk about Spotchka. Um, (laughs) So I do love that little moment, though, in Chapter 8, right before IG-11 shows up and Grief Karga is taking two quick shots of the Spotchka before he goes into battle. (laughs) Um, Oh, I need this. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No, but uh, I love the way that they explore the Force through the child in, in this first season. Um, and like you said, Jason, I totally agree that it, for the child, it's always kind of this instinctual response. Um, and what's interesting is the child is also always doing it to protect the Mandalorian. Yeah. Um, which is why I think it's so beautiful that the armor makes them a clan of two at the end of the, yeah. that episode. Um, because their fates are inevitably intertwined at this point. Um, and, I love that the child is literally a personification of the force in Dinda Jaren's life. And what I love about Dinda Jaren is, is that he responds to it, even though he doesn't fully understand it. Right. We get that at the end of chapter two, as he's riding back to repair the razor quest with, with Quill, you know, explain it to me again. I still don't understand. Neither do I. Right. Like, and the way they show his, his reactions to all these incredible things that the child does like he's always a little bit amazed um which is literally the response to any like religious experiences there's this sense of wonder and awe and din dejaren is in wonder and awe of this child um but uh yeah so i love it that how the force kind of shows up in his life and offers him this fuller life um, allowing him to become like a father to this foundling. And yeah. he accepts that. He accepts that vocation. He accepts that mission. 
um, and it's going to change his life. And in the same way that this child's life is now uh, entwined with this mysterious character, you know, it, it, the child's never even seen his face. Um, yeah. And this is something I was questioning earlier on in the season. It's like, oh, I wonder if, you know, when they're flying around together just on the Razor Crest, if, you know, the Mandalorian takes his helmet off. But I'm positive that he doesn't. Um, and that's yeah. that's made kind of clear, I think, in chapter four. And even and then even kind of expounded on in chapter six when I don't remember the name of the what's the name of the Twilight Girl? Oh, uh, it's hold on. I've got it right here. Uh, Sheehan. Sheehan, right? When they ask, when uh, they're like, oh, Sheehan, have you ever seen his face? Um, you know, oh, this is the She's way. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, have you ever seen his face? You know, oh, a girl never tells. She never didn't. kisses and tells. Yeah, she didn't, though. Like, you guarantee that, they, that she did not. He yeah. is so sworn to that creed. Um, so, yeah, like, so this child is also trusting in this kind of mysterious character as well. Um, so I love that the way their, their fates are intertwined in that way. Um, it's just so fricking beautiful. Um, yeah. And the moment when he force chokes Cara Dune again, it's this, um, you know, it's this instinctual response, um, of just trying to protect his papa, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it, I, uh, Honestly, I thought when the season ended that it would have been ending with him like taking the child somewhere to be safe and then he goes off to have other adventures. But at this point, it seems like no, like now season two's mission is figuring out what to do with the child, finding his people, whether that again means a Jedi, which in some cases, I mean, that could be Luke Skywalker or um, finding his species or his home planet and, and delivering him there. Um so it's a perfect setup for whatever the next season takes, but he is the protector now, like you said earlier. And, and I just yeah. absolutely love that story trope. Um, so yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, we don't have time to go into all of it, but I'm very interested to see, you know, what sort of partnership, uh, you know, grief Karga and Cara Dune end up forming, um, and how they're going to end up back into the story because, we know they're both signed on for season two, as far as I remember. Um, and uh, the those you know bandits that he locked up in these chapter six, you know, who who wants to take bets on that we'll see them again uh, sometime down the road? You know, like Sheehan and uh, oh God. Um, Mayfield and Berg and all them, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm almost positive we'll see them again. So, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, you know, chapters, chapters five and six, right, is collectively most people are like, oh, I don't really get them. We don't need them or they weren't my favorite. Although nobody like hated on there. Just like, oh, they just they weren't part of the overall story. The thing is, I'll say that that's to me definitely true about chapter five. Nothing really happens there, um, in my opinion. Um, but I still enjoy it. It's a really fun episode. I think there's chapter- still that mysterious figure that appo- yes. approaches Shan's body at yep. the end of the episode. Yeah. Who, at first, I was thinking might have been um, Moff Gideon, but I'm not sure no, I anymore. I don't think so anymore. I've, I've seen a lot of people point to thinking that it's Cad Bane, which I think would be awesome. 
I would love if it was Cad Bane. Yeah, um, I'd love to see. But I've also Jaren seen people thinking Cad that Bane. might be Boba Fett. So, oh yeah, well, fine. Which Did, I'm less Jaren excited about him. that. But. Yeah, same here. I don't give a flying rat's butt about Boba Fett. <laughs> I've also um, seen theories that she may have been faking her death, and that is she's actually still alive and might ooh, come back later. That could be cool. So, too. yeah, because he kind of gut shots her. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, which so it's possible. Yeah, but. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, what was I going to say? What were you just saying? I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know. Mysterious figure. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I really think it'd be cool if it was Cad Bane, though. I um, love it. I mean, even though I'm not a big Cad Bane fan, um, he is cool. And it'd be cool to see like a live action Clone War character. Yes. Um, and then we can watch. He'd Din- be very he'd be pretty old at this time, though. Yeah, good. Then Din- Din- Jaren can kill him, which would be awesome. <laughs> Gets comeuppance. So, and everybody can remember that Embo is by far the superior bounty hunter. Um, yeah, I know. Stand by it. <laughs> this is the way. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that's the last thing I wanted to bring up because uh, we should start wrapping this up. But uh, yeah. I love, I mean, we get two very powerful, like, phrases, catchphrases from Mandalorian, right? Obviously, I have spoken, which we've talked about. Um, but this is the way, is the other big yeah. one. And, you know, the Mando Creed, the Mando Creed. Right. And I love that as we get that backstory about how, um, right. Uh, you know, I didn't grow up on Mandalore. Yeah. Mandalorian isn't a race. It's a creed. And, you know, as someone who loves religions, creeds are a central part of religion. I mean, creeds are beyond religion, too. I mean, countries have creeds. Um the Boy Scouts have a creed. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. a creed is simply a statement of belief. That's all that a creed right. is. Um, but this, but the Mando even refers to the fact that weapons are part of his religion, right? They're part of probably that creed. Um, yeah. So I really, really like this particular line of this is the way because, again, it really highlights just how important this way of life is to the Mandalorian. Um, and, again, that's another thing that really attracts me to his character is that he is a character with tremendous discipline. Um, And there's something very monastic about him as someone who has studied and lived with monks several times throughout my life. I I adore monks. I love how silent they are. Um, It's a great (laughs) counter to my constant noise. Um, But uh, right. Even in that very first episode of the, the series, when uh you know his first bounty i don't remember the character's name this silly blue guy the yeah i've closed my my window so i can't look it up right now it's fine but the mithril thing and he just keeps talking to him and he ignores him right there's just this sense of discipline and you know i heard you guys never take your masks off damn right they don't Um, right and you know i i think that that's something really cool that there is something about their way of life that they really really value um, and while these rules may seem archaic and odd, they matter to them. There's a purpose to them. And, and I really respect that. Um, right. As, as someone who is particularly religious and whatever weird reason, as of late, I've actually been judged quite a bit by people, um, for being religious and holding on to creeds or holding on to certain beliefs. Um, you know, I take pride in the fact that I believe in something and I take pride in the fact that that helps uh, make sense of my life. Um, 
And and again, that doesn't have to be something religious. It can be, you know, again, like the Boy Scouts, <laughs> you know, they, the Girl Scouts have a creed. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, so I just think it's it's something really wonderful about a character that buys into something that gives direction to their life. Um, so again, that's another thing I find very admirable about Din Djarin. Yeah. And I don't remember if I've said it on this podcast, but I know I said it on uh, Faster, More Intense when I was guesting over there. Um, Din Djarin is uh, Mandalorian first, Bounty Hunter second. Mm-hmm. That his, I, and, and I think everybody going into this show thought it might be the other way around. Um, yeah. Bounty Hunter first, Mandalorian second. But no, the Mandalorian idea, the Mandalorian identity is core to his character. It is essential to his character. And that is why he essentially reneged on his contract with the client, you know, and took the child. Yeah. So that's what starts all of this. So, um, and I think, you know, having this is the way as their affirmation of the creed uh, is is a really powerful statement um, and really reinforces everything that he has done and will end up doing um, in terms of this adventure that we're now on with him. So, Yeah, yeah cool. Well, I think that's a pretty good general look at season one. And again, I really want to come back and, and revisit chapters and specific things and themes and moments. Obviously, I love talking about moments. Yes. Um, <laughs> but uh, I feel like, yeah, that's a that's a great just initial look at season one of The Mandalorian. Yes. Season two is in production, ladies and gentlemen. So uh, we're looking forward to the return of The Mandalorian later this year. Most likely fall sometime, I believe, is what we've been said is fall 2020. Yes. Whatever that ends up meaning, um, <laughs> whether it's September or November, we'll see. Um, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm very excited to see what else we get uh, with this show. I'm loving what we have so far, and I will definitely be listening to the soundtrack again. Um, yeah. All right. So I think that's all I've got. Oh, we yeah. need to uh, give you our next matchup, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Carl, who are we pitting against each other this time? Well, I thought it'd be good to have uh, two characters who were raised in fighting quarters and raised to fight for something to be- that they believe in. So, of course, we've got Din Djarin taking on Enfys Nest. There we go. The Mandalorian himself versus... Enfys Nest, uh, pain in the side for Han and company in the solo. All right, until we realize that she's actually a good guy. A good guy. Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, so, folks, please uh, weigh in on who you think will win that matchup, Carl. If people want to weigh in on that or any of our thoughts on this episode um, or The Mandalorian in general, where can they do that? Um, over on Twitter, of course, you can find us at Wampas Lair. Um, we're on Facebook at Wampas Lair Podcast. And you can certainly uh, send us an email at Wampas Lair Podcast at gmail.com. Yes. Uh, anything else you got to say before we close this down? This is the way. I have spoken.
<laughs> All right. Well, thank you everyone so much for listening to this episode of the Wampus Lair podcast. This has been episode number 367. I have spoken. Uh, for Carl and Katie, who's not here on hiatus still, I am Jason, and we'll see you next time here in the Wampus Lair. <laughs>